Mexicans are fantastic at cultural appropriation, no? <laughs> Talk about a taco al pastor, no? That's a Lebanese kebab. Cooking cannot exist without a certain degree of cultural appropriation. I'm Nita Rao, and this is Lost in Mexico, a podcast about my journey to understand Mexican life through conversations with Mexicans. In this special episode, I interview Mexico's most famous chef, Enrique Oliveira, owner of two of the world's top restaurants, Puyol in Mexico City, ranked 12th, and Cosme in New York City, ranked 23rd. Chef Oliveira's journey to fame has been told many times, including in a glossy episode of Netflix's Chef's Table. So I decided to ask him about some more controversial topics, including the alleged cultural appropriation of Mexican cuisine by white chefs in the United States, the exorbitant cost of fine dining for many Mexicans, and what the re-election of Donald Trump would do for Mexico-US relations. The chef was an open book, and his views on a number of things, including Tex-Mex food, were not what I had expected. To check out a video of the interview, head to our Lost in Mexico YouTube channel and follow us on Instagram at lostinmexico.podcast. We'll be back in a couple of weeks with a regular episode of Lost in Mexico, where we'll look at the other side of the dining equation. Cooks, often women and often indigenous, who have been written out of the history of Mexican cuisine. For now, though, here's Chef Oliveira. Chef Oliveira, thank you so much for joining us on Lost in Mexico. The purpose of this podcast is to move beyond the narco-centric narratives about Mexico that have historically predominated the foreign press and tell interesting stories about Mexico based on conversations with Mexicans. And, you know, for us, it's a real privilege to have you here as you are a visionary of Mexican cuisine. And interestingly enough, the owner of the top-ranked Mexican restaurant in the world and the top-ranked U.S. restaurant mm-hmm. in the world. So thank you so much for, you. for joining us. Thank you. Welcome to Puyol. <laughs> <laughs> I want to start with your personal story because mm-hmm. one thing that intrigues me is that it feels as if your personal story has actually mirrored the transformation of Mexican cuisine, so to speak. And you obviously wanted to become a chef many years ago, but then decided to go and pursue culinary school in the U.S. as opposed to in Mexico. Mm -hmm. Tell me about why you decided to make that decision. Um, Well, back then, uh, cuisine in Mexico was not as popular. So uh, most people that came into kitchens, uh, it it wasn't optional. It was more something that happened in their lives. Uh, There was not a lot of culinary schools in Mexico. There were uh, a couple of uh, like quick certificates, and my father was very... Uh, keen on me having a bachelor's degree. So uh, we started looking elsewhere. We looked in uh, Europe and several schools in the U.S. We saw a couple in Mexico. And then the first time I went to the school in New York, it was like for a kid going to Disneyland, no? like seeing so many people, uh, so many chefs there, it immediately felt like home. So that's that's the reason I, I went to school in the U.S. Was it the case that at the time in Mexico, the level of sophistication when it came to the formalized training of cooks just wasn't there? I think in Mexico, uh, Mexican food has uh, belonged at homes and in markets, but restaurants were, uh, didn't do Mexican food in, in a higher level. Most most uh, fine dining restaurants in Mexico when I was young were French or Japanese. Uh, 
uh, or even Italia, no? But the concept of, of a fine dining Mexican establishment is something that didn't exist before and still is challenged by, by some people here in Mexico, whether Mexican food can be uh, prepared at that level is obviously something that uh, we're trying to do. Most of the culinary training, therefore, happened at home. Mm. So the techniques were learned from generation to generation, uh, not necessarily as a craft, but more as a family treasure uh, or a family recipe. So I, th I think that is the, the big change and one of the reasons that there's no, there wasn't as many culinary schools. Obviously, that has changed drastically. Uh, there are uh, more and more culinary schools in almost every corner of the country. Cooking has become uh, a profession and a career choice uh, for people in my generation and for uh, a lot of young men and women in Mexico. So in 2000, you start Pujol, mm -hmm. and you are using Mexican ingredients, but you are not cooking Mexican dishes. Tell me about mm -hmm. that. Why did you decide to do that? It wasn't a, a, like a decision. It was simply my training uh, in New York was with European techniques. Uh, when I was in, in the United States, I saw a movement of the new American cooking uh, with uh, Alice Waters, you know, with Larry Forgione, with people that were reimagining uh, what American food was. And when I came here in Mexico, uh, it made sense that that movement can happen in Mexico because we have such uh, rich culture here. So little by little, we started working with ingredients, but because my training was in European cuisine, uh, we started with uh, European techniques and, and some Mexican products. And then little by little, we started incorporating not only those products, but recipes and, and ideas. But we, we never wanted to, uh, to create you know, something that was a mix, but actually something that felt more intuitive. Were you ever worried subconsciously at the time that if you started doing Mexican uh, cuisine and a fine dining restaurant, that there just wasn't a market for that? Mm. Uh, I actually never thought of a <laughs> market we were cooking out of passion. Mm. Um, we, we never did like market research on, mm. on whether <laughs> you know, the, the food was going to sell. Obviously, the, the first few years were, uh, were very hard. There's mm. not a lot of people that walked into uh, Pujol's uh, tables. The, I think also the problem was that the concept was not, uh, it was not well-rounded. Mm. Uh, the food, like I said, was a little European with some Mexican ingredients. The name was Spanish. The locale was <laughs> minimalistic, so it, it didn't make sense. No, it took us a while. Uh, it, I graduated in two in 1999 and we opened Puyol in 2000 so yeah. uh, I'm, I didn't have a lot of training in my background we were basically learning uh, as we as we cooked and and the first three or four years were were really really rough yeah. uh, and then we started finding a voice we uh, because there was not a, li a lot of people coming into the restaurant we started thinking like what are we doing wrong and we saw a lot of the street uh, food carts being busy, so we said uh, that's what people want to eat. No, if people want to eat quesadillas and they want to eat esquites and they want to eat tacos, that is something that we should incorporate 
into our language, and that started happening in 2004. Mm. So our first in- incursion into Mexican cooking was not with the celebratory dishes or the no, the big dishes of Mexico, but much more street food inspirations that uh, started appearing in in uh, in our menu, and also things that I remember from childhood and and uh, childhood memories from my mom cooking at home. So. You start Pujol in 2000 at the age of like 24. <laughs> then you start Cosme in 2014 in New York. Both of these mm-hmm. restaurants are now seen as the pinnacle of Mexican mm-hmm. fine dining. Mm-hmm. You've spoken a little bit about how you wanted to change the Western perception that Mexican food is cheap and easy. Do you think mm-hmm. you've done that? I think we have done that through generations. No, this is not something that we, we're not isolated in history. It does coincide you know, with the, the latest years, uh, people recognizing that Mexican food uh, can also be sophisticated, that can also be performed in a higher level, but it's something that Ricardo was building, you know, myself have uh, built on that heritage, you know, and now the younger generations are also part of that conversation. So we see our uh, Mexican food as a continuum. We didn't break with tradition, and there were a lot of chefs. Uh, Monica Patino, for instance, no, is one of uh, the people that I admire uh, in, in my younger years as, as a chef. No, and they they paved the the road for us. Uh, there's a, a really uh, Nice restaurant called Empeyon in, in New York. Uh, the, the chef is Alex Tupac, and he was one of the first that started doing Mexican cuisine at, at a higher level. So if he didn't come in before we did with Cosme, probably the history would be different. So it would be incorrect to say that we built this movement. Yeah. No, it's actually a collective effort. I want to ask you about Mexican labor mm-hmm. in the U.S. because there are so many Mexican workers who are working in the restaurant industry who have traditionally been poorly treated, underpaid, mm-hmm. and subject to a lot of discrimination. Mm-hmm. Do you think that a lot of your restaurants in the U.S. have helped to change the way that Mexican labor is valued? I think there's a, a sense of pride that comes uh, to working in a restaurant like Cosme or, or like Puyol. No, there's, of course, uh, no, there's uh, the craft, but there's also... Uh, 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 a cheerfulness of understanding that people are uh, are giving a different value to to a tortilla. So I I think what we're trying to do is not only change the perception of the customer, but also change the perce- the perception of the producers and and the and the people that work in the restaurant. So that they feel uh, pride in in their job. They feel pride. In their culture, and they understand that uh, that that culture also belongs in, in a fine dining restaurant. And is one of your priorities in terms of changing the perception of producers is to make sure the producers are properly remunerated for their work, which you don't necessarily get when it comes to cheap food. Yes, absolutely, and it, it it's something that we uh, practice in every restaurant. You no, know, in in Puyol, in Cosme, in Atla. We, we like to work with small producers. We like to engage with their practices. It's not only about uh, the quality of the product. It's the people that grow uh, the food for us. Obviously, 
when you have a, a good tomato, the, the probability that you no know, somebody was taking good care of the soil and of the plant is high. But uh, it is also very important, you no, know, because we're not. If something uh, taught uh, this current uh, crisis has, has taught us is that we're part of a community and the food system. Uh, it's uh, you, you're not isolated. So you you need to make sure that you have those strong connections with the with the farmers. Chef Oliveira, I want to ask you how you feel about particular criticism towards your restaurants because you know we have many Mexican friends who say, you know, Chef Oliveira has done a wonderful job in terms of being an ambassador um, of Mexican cuisine to foreigners and teaching foreigners about Mexican cuisine and teaching foreigners to value Mexican cuisine. But you know, most Mexicans can't afford to eat at Pujol. And, you know, should Pujol be so expensive when there is excellent food at street vendors and in markets? Do you think sometimes it's easier to convince foreigners of the value of your food rather yeah. than Mexicans? I mean, it's a conversation that, about quality, you know, and, and of course, uh, we, we want everybody to, to earn uh, better wages in Mexico, I think. The idea would be not to produce cheap food, but actually increase the wages of everyone. So that is something that we practice at the restaurants. The salaries that we pay in Pujol are uh, much higher than the average in the industry. So I think the conversation shouldn't be if Mexican (laughs) food should be cheap, but if Mexicans should earn more for their work. I want to ask you specifically about your relationship with Mole, because I know it has been a very defining dish for you. What does Mole mean to you? Uh, Mole is a celebratory dish. Uh, Every family and every town have their their recipe of a Mole. Since Puyol is a a celebratory restaurant, a lot of people come here for their birthdays, for anniversaries, for a special occasion. Uh, We thought that it was proper for us to have our own version of a mole, our own recipe. Uh, the, the recipe that uh, we like more is the black mole from Oaxaca. That's mm. the, the mole that we enjoy the most. And our recipe of the mole madre is based on, on a black mole recipe. Uh, we, did, we changed certain things because our mole uh, belongs in a tasting menu. And we never create dishes on isolation, but actually, uh, if you're thinking about music, we're not doing a song, we're doing a, an album. Mm. Uh, so the, the mole belongs into, uh, into a tasting menu, and that's why we don't serve it with, uh, with chicken. And then the preparation of the mole, because we do it year round, uh, we use uh, different fruits uh, and different uh, spices through the year. So that recipe is changing depending on, on what fruits we can get in season. So that, those are the two uh, main, main reasons and that we have a mole at, at the menu. And then the idea, uh, Ricardo uh, to- taught me about a seven-day-old mole uh, more than 15 years ago. <laughs> and I, I never uh, thought of it much, but mm. when we were trying to make our, our mole recipe for, uh, for an anniversary of Quintonil, we, instead of doing it seven days, we, we said we're going to do double, see what happens. So we reheated the mole uh, for 14 days for the anniversary, 
of uh, Quintonil, and then we started just doing it uh, permanently. You know? So we just it's a reheating process because in, in Mexico, uh, people say that the mole on the next day of the wedding tastes better. Uh, kind of what happens uh, in other countries with multiple uh, recipes. Now I can think of, for example, like turkey on Thanksgiving and Thanksgiving turkey on the next day with, on a sandwich. You know? Things uh, that you reheat are, are normally more flavorful. So you've spoken about mole in the context of cultural appropriation. Mm -hmm. And specifically what I want to ask you about is, you know, there are a lot of people who think that there are all these non-Mexican chefs coming to Mexico, mm -hmm. taking the recipes of locals, and then going back to the U.S. or anywhere else in the world and profiting mm -hmm. off that. You were in the Atlantic a few years ago mm -hmm. saying that you thought that the idea of cultural appropriation in food was, was absurd, mm -hmm. and you used mole as an example. Yeah. Talk me through that. Um, well, um, Mexicans are fantastic at cultural appropriation, no? <laughs> Talk about a taco al pastor, no? That's a Lebanese kebab. Uh, we took cilantro from Asia, uh, and you make it you make it yours. So I think, of course, there's concerns about cultural appropriation uh, everywhere in the world. But I think in cooking, uh, if you're respectful, you know, uh, and and you give credit to the to the people that I, I don't believe that I created uh, mole, no, and I don't believe that the tortilla belongs to anyone. No, the recipe of a margarita is also public domain. Nobody can say that uh, the margarita belongs uh, to them, even if you create it. You know, when, because when you're creating, you're not creating from zero. You're obviously incorporating ideas from, uh, from your life of things that you have uh, tasted. So with mole, it's a little bit the same. No? It, of course, there are moles that are native, uh, that are uh, pre-Columbian, but the moles, for example, the conventional moles like the mole poblano is a mix of cultures. So um, I think in cooking, cooking cannot exist without a certain degree of cultural appropriation. So given that you think that most dishes are an amalgamation or an effusion mm. of so many different cultures, is there an authentic Mexican dish? Depends on, I would say there's regional dishes okay. in time periods, you know, but uh, you, and you can say that not only about Mexican food, you can say that, I don't know, if you think about pasta with tomatoes, that cultural appropriation from noodles from China and tomatoes from Mexico, you know, it's, it's, it starts to become, I think, uh, difficult, that, that conversation to say who owns what, you know, mm -hmm. and I, I personally think it's better to think that no food belongs to everyone. So I want to ask you about sort of farming practices and sustainability, mm -hmm. which you touched on before, because mm -hmm. I know that you, for example, like to buy some of your produce from producers in Xochimilco who use more sort of Aztecan and sustainable mm -hmm. farming practices. What would you say to the Monsantos of the world who say that it is cheaper and more efficient to produce food that feeds a lot of people mm -hmm. using things like genetically modified crops? Um, I think the, the issue with industrialized food production is that, uh, first of all, it's a system that is uh, geared towards concentration of, of wealth. And the idea of, of food production should be the, the wealth of, of food 
production belongs to the community. Uh, to me, the, the simple idea of a, a company profiting from a seed for, for all the farmers makes no sense. I think seeds are deposits of, of culture and, and it, they have been uh, nourished by the community through generations and, and I think that makes a lot more sense in, in terms of food production and obviously monoculture destroys the soil, the soil is the patrimony of the community uh, and, and we have to take care of it as a collective. I, I don't see in corn a commodity, I see in corn an expression of diversity, an expression of climate uh, and as the uh, as a wealth of our culture. So you don't think that even if there is an ability to feed more people, that that mm-hmm. should be, I suppose, prioritized in favor of, you know, over and above preservation of diversity? I mean, if the system was successful, you couldn't argue with success, <laughs> right? But uh, we can all see the results. Mm. I have to ask mm-hmm. you about um, the controversy surrounding an article that you wrote in Reforma, mm-hmm. expressing some frustration with, you know, entitled people who come into Pujol and, and expect to expect to be served lemon and chili with their with their dishes. And the Twitter sphere <laughs> was very quick <laughs> to respond and suggest that you were actually being entitled. Yeah. Tell me what your re- reflection is on all of that. Well the the idea was not to say that people that come to Pujol are entitled. I was giving examples on on uh for example, you know, the idea of adding uh, lemon to a nigiri in, in a fine Japanese uh, restaurant, I think uh, you're, you're not respecting the work of the, of the sushi chef. And I was talking more about them uh, than we're talking about uh, Puyol in the context of the pandemic, which mm-hmm. I think it's also important to, uh, to say that. No, the idea was not complaining about customers adding chile to our dishes. <laughs> we add chile ourselves and lemon to most of the dishes in Puyol have lemon and chile. Uh, but it, it's more about respect to others and how you should wear a mask, you know, and be courteous and don't uh, parallel, don't double park, which is something that uh, happens in Mexico too. There's uh, sometimes uh, I wish there would be more respect for the work of others. So I was I was talking about that, not complaining <laughs> about customers. I want to ask you about about the way that you value your own work. Chef Munoz described you as an artist. Do you consider yourself an artist? Um, no, I think I, I, I'm in love with things that are well made. Mm. Uh, and I do have a passion for that. Uh, I It gives me a lot of joy when I when I go into a space that is beautiful, when I cook food that is clean mm. and elegant and delicate. Uh, uh, there's a sensibility for that, but I, I don't know if I'm an artist. <laughs> I, if I had to say yes or no, I would probably say no. <laughs> <laughs> so you wouldn't consider your your creations as works of art? No, it's a, it's a dedication, it's a, it's a life passion, it's a way of understanding our life, but I see it more as a series of connections uh, than a, a work, you know, in a, in a workshop isolated. You are one of the most prominent Mexicans um, in the world because of the work that you've done. Um, 
I know that you've previously expressed some concern about children at the border. This year is an election year. <laughs> yeah. Are you worried about the re-election of Trump and what that might do to Mexico-U.S. relations? Um, of course, I'm, I'm concerned about the re-election of Trump. I think the discourse in, of polarization that has happened in the U.S. is not positive for anyone, not only for Mexicans. Even though I... Uh, I am in love with my country. I'm not a nationalist. I don't believe in a strong national sentiments. Like I said, even if I love the food of Mexico, uh, it's not it's not something that we intend. I I believe in in humanity, in in the links between uh, countries, in 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 regions, and uh, I think the election of Trump or the re-election of Trump uh, attempts. On that, no, and, and the separation of of families and and the polarization of of society. It's interesting to say to hear you say that you're not you don't consider yourself a nationalist. Do you think mm. that that belief is inherent in your food in some ways? Because you don't believe in sort of cultural mm. appropriation in Mexican cuisine, mm-hmm. because Mexican cuisine is a fusion of so many other different types mm. of cuisines. Yeah, it's it's about being human, no, and not where you're from. There's a lot of uh, Mexicans that are not born in Mexico, no? Uh, we're saying that uh, Chavela Vargas said, like, there's not Mexicans uh, can choose wherever they want to be born. No? So I, I think in, in that sense, uh, we, we need to uh, understand that we're all in this boat together. There's no nationalities. There's no winning between nations. There's no... Uh, I don't. I don't see a benefit. Yeah. I, I. I see more of a dialogue, and and uh, a harmony between humans than uh, national power. So you are opening up a new restaurant in LA. Mm-hmm. Very exciting. Yes. Thank you. When you opened up Cosme, you said that it was a very unique experience for you because you were entering into a market that was not mm-hmm. really familiar with Mexican cuisine. Now you're going into LA, <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> where there is there are some Mexicans living in LA. There's obviously yeah. such a strong historical and cultural link between Mexico and, and LA. Tell me about what the challenges mm. are involved in entering into that type of market. We understand that uh, California has its own Mexican cuisine. I I almost see it, you know, as a region as a different regional cuisine uh, of Mexico, just mm. as there's the cuisine from Oaxaca or Yucatan uh, no, or, or uh, Mexico City. I think California has its own uh, version of Mexican cuisine and we, we're we taking that into consideration. Uh, I think the sentiment is kind of the same, but the context is very different. I was there uh, yesterday no, and we were uh, doing menu trials and it, uh, it felt to be completely honest, a lot like Cosme. No? Mm. It felt like that start of something that is new, that you uh, you know what you want, but you don't know where you're going. Because mm. also, I think the reality of, of California uh, no, will kind of uh, will set the, the road for us. We're not, of course, you have an idea on your mind on where you want the restaurant to go, but then the restaurant kind of takes the life uh, by itself. It's uh, When we opened Cosmic, we never thought 
that Cosme was going to be uh, the kind of restaurant that it became. No, it was mm. supposed to be a like casual, more more uh, festive restaurant. No, and it became uh, a lot more celebrated than expected. Um, so we, you never know when you open a restaurant what's going to happen. Uh, but I, I do feel that with California, we, we uh, I feel a little bit uh, more at home, maybe because there's such a strong presence of Mexicans uh, there. And, and I think there's, I feel like a, a, a immediate connection to, to the culture of California. And, and we want to be part of that. We're not there to to uh, carry the flag of authenticity. No, mm. we, we love California products. It's, I think, one of the best places on earth to, to cook. The quality and the, and the flavors of the ingredients there is amazing. Mm. And we just want to cook those ingredients. Mm. I'm intrigued by what you say mm. in terms of California being almost another state of Mexico in terms of its cuisine. Do you consider Tex-Mex to be similar? Yes, absolutely, absolutely. <laughs> Do you like Tex-Mex? I, I like it when it's well prepared. <laughs> you know what the problem with Tex-Mex is uh, sometimes is that we also, relate, and this is something that we need to work on, but you normally relate it to fast food. Mm. So you, you relate it to poor quality tortilla shells or poor quality... Uh, ground up beef, but those are stereotypes, mm. no? and that has happened to Mexico. So I'm not gonna fall into that uh, trap. And I think if you prepare good quality Tex-Mex, of course it's delicious. <laughs> <laughs> so I should see you at Chipotle, <laughs> lining up for a burrito. <laughs> I, I've eaten in Chipotle before. <laughs> so it's 20 years since you opened for Joel. Mm. It's a pretty incredible landmark achievement. This year has obviously presented some challenges because of COVID. Mm -hmm. Tell me about how you've tried to navigate through those challenges. Um, I guess uh, in, in, in March, what we were thinking was uh, this was going to take a few months uh, to get over. But now that we understand uh, that it'll take a little bit longer, uh, what we're uh, trying to do is understand what's going to happen to us and how we would like the restaurant to be more than the pandemic itself. Mm. Of course, we are concerned with the sanitary crisis and the economic crisis, but those things are completely out of our control. No, mm. we, we cannot control uh, how the pandemic is evolving and, and the economic crisis of, the, of our industry in, in specific. What we can control is the experience of Puyol uh, certain changes that we did, for example, here uh, on the restaurant was opening our terrace for a la carte people with no reservations. Yeah. Uh, no, so th there's little things that that we're changing. Uh, we're still convinced that people enjoy really good food, and I think that is something that will will uh, survive the pandemic. So we know that it might take us a few months more or even a year more, but it will finish at some point. So right now we, we just uh, need to be skinny and flexible mm. um, to make sure that we can survive the pandemic. And then after that, uh, uh, we'll come back hopefully as strong as ever. Are you concerned about the restaurant industry? Of course, there's mm. so many closings. You know? There's so many people uh, suffering and not only 
employees, uh, but also producers you know, and, and farmers that depend on, on those restaurants because they have no distribution channel to supermarkets. Mm. Um, so, of course, I'm concerned. Uh, I, I think this situation uh, for restaurants is has been uh, really challenging and continue to be challenging uh, for the for a, for a good period of time. Mm. Uh, you know, some people are saying maybe March, April. Other people are saying December of uh, 2021. Mm. So uh, it will be really hard. You have to be on top of uh, your game right now. I think it. Uh, right now you have to also make sure that uh, you're performing well in every level, not only in the gastronomic or in the hospitality, but also in the financial. Mm. Uh, everything needs to be very precise, right. so there's very uh, little room for, for mistakes right now. So 20 years ago, you opened Pujol. Now you sit here 20 years later with two of the best restaurants in the world. Where is Enrique Oliveira in 20 years' time? Uh, hopefully in a farm. <laughs> <laughs> hopefully in a farm or... Uh, somewhere in the countryside, I really enjoy nature. Uh, I, I love uh, I, I love simple life. So hopefully, hopefully not in twenty years, maybe fifteen. <laughs> <laughs> Just retire yes. to somewhere luxurious. Retire to Oaxaca. Yes, Oaxaca or the mountains or the ocean. Uh, mm. I also really love restaurant industry. So mm. I'll probably stay involved in some capacity in restaurants, but. Uh, I started really young, and uh, I also I I truly believe that you now it's also time to uh, to let other generations take uh, care of of the industry, and hopefully nowadays other people will continue the legacy of Ricardo and, mm. and the legacy of our work. How would you describe the ride? The, the ride has yeah. been fantastic. Yeah. It's crazy. I mean, if you think about it, when we opened Puyol, we we had uh, 40 seats in a very small location. Uh, of course, we wanted to have a beautiful restaurant, but we never expected mm. to grow in, in, into uh, into this restaurant collection. And we're very proud. And, and I think the the most beautiful part is that the people that work for for the restaurants also have become part of the family mm. and they have interiorized those values and to me that is the the, the best part of the ride is that now there's now people that a, a lot of people there's hundreds of employees in the company that have that same vision of mexican food mm. thank you so much chef Oliveira, for you. joining us today that thank was you. such a pleasure likewise <laughs> thank you Thank you for joining us on Lost in Mexico. Please subscribe to the podcast to never miss an episode. And please leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. We'll see you next time.